Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to open your word. We ask that... um, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning, that you would uh, illuminate your word, that, that we would uh, be able to understand your word and be able to apply it to our lives. We ask that it would be impactful to us as individuals and as a community, that we would seek to, to know you more, build a relationship with you, to build relationship with one another. Father, we also uh, we pray for the people in Ukraine. We pray for safety. We pray for our world leaders, and the leaders of other nations. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work through them to bring about peace according to your will. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are in Ukraine. Pray for their protection. We pray that you would strengthen their faith that as they're going through such a tumultuous time and people begin to ask hard questions in life and seek a savior, that they would be able to share your gospel. We know that through you all things are possible, and so we pray, God, that you would be present there. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, story is a pretty uh, powerful thing. It's the way we primarily communicate. It's, it's, what we, um, it's how we form our understanding of the world and, and who we are and, and what we're supposed to do. Um, think of all the ways that we understand stories these days. We read them. I like to read, but I, I can't keep up with Rachel Thomas. She... Uh, Whenever I go on Facebook and I see that she's like on her 60th book of the year and it's like March, I'm like, well, I can't do that. But uh, um, stories are really important. TV, movies, even, even the news that we actually intake today is delivered in a story format because it's forming. It's more impactful than just a set of facts. When we read the word of God, we see the story of God. We see the story of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we open up uh, the word and we, and we think about it like uh, just a bunch of facts and then we kind of either forget about it or we try to figure out how those facts might be important to us. But when we see it as a story, it can form us. When we see that we have a role and a purpose to play in God's story, it can tell us a little bit about who we are and what we're supposed to do when we understand that that our story is just meant to be woven in with the story of God, it brings such a deeper meaning to who we are and where we are and how we're supposed to be living. So that's going to be my challenge today, that we would see that as we look at this story in the scriptures. We're going to be continuing in the book of Acts, so if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, Uh, and we'll be beginning in verse 11. You'll you'll remember from last time uh, that uh, the Jerusalem council had happened, and uh, now Paul and Silas were were setting off on their missionary journey, and they had a plan, and uh, 
God continued to prevent them from uh, doing what they thought they were supposed to be doing. And, and Joe gave a wonderful sermon about, uh, about the will of God and how that apply, uh, applies in our life and what that might look like and how that plays out. Um, and in the verses just preceding this, we have uh, the vision uh, of a Macedonian man calling Paul because Macedonia needed to hear the gospel. So, uh, so they set out for Macedonia. And that's kind of where we pick up uh, in the scriptures. And, and as we look at it, we're going to see in this story, uh, we're going to see that God continues to save people of a diverse background through gospel proclamation. God continues to save people of a diverse background from gospel, uh, due to gospel proclamation. We see that uh, pattern throughout the book of Acts, and we see it here again. Uh, we also see that God wants to use believers and their gifts for his kingdom. And then we're also going to see a little bit about hospitality. So um, read with me, beginning in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrake, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for days. Now, um, it's helpful for us uh, to place into context what is happening. Uh, we know that Paul set out on his journey. Uh, the journey from uh, Troas here uh, to Neapolis would have been by boat, stopping at uh, the island of Samothrake, which is about halfway between. And then when they got to the shore of uh, Neapolis, it was about 10 more miles to get to Philippi. And they would have taken uh, the Ignatian Way or the Ignatian Road um, for that journey, which is kind of like, a, I mean, it was a Roman road. Remember, Rome was, uh, was developing roads and, and systems, uh, so this actually made their journey uh, helpful. Part of it was even cobbled, you know? So that, that, that's a, it's pretty amazing when you consider the time that this was written. Uh, we also see that uh, it took them about two days, right, uh, to get there, if, if you add it up. Why is that interesting? Well, you're going to read later of the return trip, and it takes them five days. So the, I guess they had the wind at their back, you know, they were able to get there uh, quickly. But uh, I'm sure Paul and Silas and the travelers were still tired. Uh, remember, they had been traveling for a while, trying to go different ways, and, and, and stopped along the way. And, and uh, so it was a long journey to be able to get to Philippi. You also see that it's a Roman colony. Now, um, this is important because it's, it was like a little Rome. In fact, it was referred to as little Rome uh, by many writers. What does it mean that there's a Roman colony? It's helpful for us uh, contextually to understand what it might have looked like when we think about uh, how the gospel was proclaimed and the impact that it had there. Uh, this Roman colony would have uh, had an autonomous government. So uh, they didn't follow the Roman government. They actually had an autonomous government. It was kind of like under Rome though, right? But that, that's a pretty big deal. Um, super wealthy. Uh, it's a wealthy city, the city of Philippi, very rich in like copper and silver and gold. Uh, it's nestled up against some hills in a very fertile region. So you see that the city had a lot of wealth. Uh, you, you already see that there's Roman roads going into and out of it. So the, the opportunity uh, for uh, influence in that area um, was very high. The, uh, the fact that it was a Roman colony meant that it was free from like tribute and taxation. So you have a very wealthy city 
that does not have to pay tribute or taxes like other Roman cities. So you even have like an increased ability for that wealth to be distributed. It plays a key role in the church later on in the New Testament. Um, And then also likely had a very, very small Jewish population. And we're going to dig into this a little bit more. But um, when you look at uh, Philippi, some of the things that were written, some of the language that was used of the writing of the day and some of the inscriptions, the the writing and the language seems to reflect a a highly uh, Gentile culture uh, over a Jewish culture, whereas some of the other cities had a a lot of other like uh, Jewish culture involved. So it's just helpful for us to understand that that was, that was the place where, where Paul was landing and, and going on to preach the gospel. Uh, read with me verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So Again, this this gives us the indication that there was probably a small Jewish presence. Why do I say that? Well, uh, people point to this verse as as evidence that there probably was no synagogue. Um, Typically, to have a Jewish synagogue, there had to be at least 10 men to create a a synagogue. And we see here that that women are spoken to, not men. Um, And they're outside the city. It's referred to as a place of prayer, which we'll come back to. Um, But all of that points to, all right, probably a small Jewish population, very small. Um, the other thing is the fact that it's outside the city. Why is that important? Well, there's, there's actually an inscription on, on the walls on the city of Philippi that say, like, no, it says something to the effect of no foreign cults or no foreign uh, religions are allowed inside the city. And, and we have uh, from the historian Josephus uh, documents that actually show Roman uh, uh, legal documents that say, okay, you know, foreign religions or, or religions that were not recognized within Rome could meet as long as they were outside the city. And the river outside of Philippi is about a mile away. That's kind of our con- context uh, for what's happening. Why do I say all that? Why is that important in understanding? Well, it tells us a little bit about these people. It tells us a little bit about their faithfulness to gather at a place of prayer, a small number of them, put to the fringes of society. Um, It's pretty amazing, if we think about it, that uh, their faithfulness continued to lead them to gather for prayer. Particularly in the Roman society when uh, the, the idea of religion was polytheism, right? I mean, they just took in just about any god they could and made idols to them, made statues to them. Um, Even the emperor was viewed as a god. Tribute and taxes being paid to the emperor was viewed as a religious act under uh, these Roman ideas. So why would they be pushed off to the outside? They're small. They're unknown. Highly Gentile culture. That's what we're seeing here. Now, the place of prayer, we get that from the, from the Greek word uh, persuke, which actually does mean prayer. And in its noun form, it's often uh, referred to as a place of prayer. Uh, that's, kind of how it's, that's kind of how it's written. That's how it's translated. 
So some writers will say that there's no synagogue here, but some writers say, no, this was the synagogue outside the city. And, and, and what they point to for that is that this word, translated here as place of prayer, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament as a synagogue, and we know that there was a synagogue there. It's also used in extra-biblical language, uh, or extra-biblical literature, as a, a place of a synagogue. Now, why don't I think it's a synagogue? Because Luke is writing all the book of Acts. And if it is a synagogue, this is the only place in all of Luke's writing where he would use that word and mean the same thing as a synagogue. He uses the word sunago for synagogue. He doesn't use prosuke. So um, that, again, leads us to the understanding, okay, this is likely a small Jewish, uh, small Jewish gathering, primarily of women, it looks like, um, and pushed to the fringes. That's the picture here. Now look at verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is, this is pretty amazing. If you think about what's happening here, uh, you have the wealthy city. Uh, this, this woman, Lydia, probably was of substantial means. Uh, we find out later that she has a house. Uh, and even later, when Paul and Silas are coming back through, her house is the place of gathering for the church. Um, we also know that she comes from a very diverse background. Uh, Theatira was where uh, it says that, you know, that she is from. There was a Jewish population there. So it's likely that she heard about the Old Testament God there, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And then she became a worshiper of God, it says. It's kind of a technical term here, uh, God-fearer, God-worshipper. What that kind of means is someone who is not of the faith, a Gentile, who has come to faith in Yahweh, but has not converted fully to Judaism. So these people uh, might not keep parts of the law, and they were also relegated to uh, the outside at like feasts and festivals. They weren't, they weren't allowed in. So there's, there's an interesting aspect of Lydia where we see um, someone that's pushed to the fringes by the city of Philippi. We also see that she may even be pushed to the fringes by, um, by people of her own community just because she wasn't a full convert. Uh, the temple, worshiping in the temple, um, God-fearers or God-worshippers were only allowed, uh, allowed uh, so much access. They weren't allowed into the, into the innermost places where full Jews were. Access to God was divvied up. Separation. That's where she comes from. She's also a businesswoman. We see that. As a matter of fact, the, these, uh, these purple fabrics, um, you have essentially two fabrics that were being created. Okay, uh, You have uh, very nice purple fabrics that were being sold to like royalty, um, people of great wealth and power. Um, and then you also have a more common uh, fabric that was being created from a root. But the word he, for purple here is uh, porphyra, 
And that's actually where we get our word purple. And it's the, it is the name of a shellfish that shows up in the region of Theatira. And that shellfish is used to create purple dye. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how language works? When we say purple, we're actually talking, we're using a Greek creation of the name for a shellfish that created the color purple for fabric. It's pretty cool. Porphyra. And that shellfish was how they created like really nice uh, fabrics for purple. We don't know what business Lydia had. Maybe she sold the super nice stuff. Maybe she sold the not nice stuff. Maybe she sold both. We don't know. But what's clear is that she was a wealthy woman of a lot of influence. A lot of influence. And we'll get into that in a little bit. We don't know what Paul said when it says that, uh, that they sat down and started speaking with the women. We don't, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us. But we do see patterns of what Paul says to people when he's telling them about Jesus, don't we? We've already seen them several times in, in the book of Acts. We see them uh, later in the book of Acts, and we see them in the New Testament as well. Paul speaks of the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Since she's a God-fearer, a worshiper of God, she probably has some idea of, uh, of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. She's probably heard about the Messiah, so Paul probably told her, he's come. He's already come. I wonder if he looked at her and, and saw that she was put to the fringes. I wonder if he looked at her and, and saw that she was needing the Savior. When you think of the inscription of Philippi, that religions, unless they're sanctioned by Rome, were put, pushed to the out, and then she, she was pushed to the outside probably by, um, uh, by Jewish people not being able to participate fully in temple worship, not being able to participate in, in festivals and feasts. She's on the outside. And, th and then come to think of it, she, she's a woman in this, in this culture, which, and that culture was again another, okay, we're going to push you to the outside. But Paul... Paul goes right to her, speaks to her about the gospel. Uh, there's, a, there's another lady that has a home um, with another inscription. And I, I'd like to read this inscription to you. It says, uh, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. You guys know where that inscription is? Statue of Liberty. And at, and at the feet of the Statue of Liberty is a broken chain, signifying that there is freedom from bondage available. Maybe uh, something along those lines is what Paul told these women. 
That, that Jesus had come to take their sin. Jesus had come to restore their relationship with God. And that through faith in him, they can receive everlasting life. Think about the, the burden and the weight that can be taken off of someone's shoulders if they hear that message. I imagine that is the message that he told her. God holds the same promise of freedom to those who are looking to escape bondage. He welcomes all to come and to bring their problems, their burdens, and their needs. And he's faithful to show us the way. He's faithful to show us the way. Some of you uh, may feel like you, you don't quite fit into God's story. You feel on the outside. Some of you may be thinking, you know, I, I, I get it, you know, I believe in Jesus and everything, but I'm, I'm too old to, uh, to serve God. Some of you might think you're too young or inexperienced. Some of you might actually think that you're, you're not worthy to serve God because someone told you you're a woman and you shouldn't be able to serve God. These, these false ideas are out there. And a lot of times they're in the stories that we, that we partake in, in the news, in the TV, in movies, in books. But they're wrong. God wants everyone to come to him. Everyone to be a part of his story. If you hear nothing else today, that's what I want you to hear. God wants you to be a part of his story. He's saying, come to me, bring your mess, bring your need. I'll show you broken chains. You won't feel like a slave anymore. I'll bring you into freedom. That's what God wants us to hear. And then it says that God uh, opens her heart. Look at the last part of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You know, um, we, we have a group that meets a, at our house on Tuesdays where we uh, discuss scripture and discuss uh, the sermon and, and things like that. And it uh, must have been two or three weeks ago now, we had, uh, we had somebody ask the question, well, I, I don't understand, is, is salvation like a divine thing? Is it div uh, divinely inspired or is it a human choice? Is it divine sovereignty or, or human freedom, human choice, right, to, to place your faith in Jesus? And, and for the next hour, we discussed that. We, we looked at different uh, scripture references. We uh, talked about our preconceived ideas and things like that. And, and by the end of the night, we finally arrived at the answer as a group where you could say, all right, is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility, human freedom, human choice? To which the answer we all said was, yes, it's both. How that goes together, I don't know, it might be a little bit confusing, but it does go together. And you see it right here in one verse. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things 
spoken by Paul. She responded, but it was only because the Lord opened her heart. Isn't it amazing? So simple. And, and what does this do for us? Um, we see that without like divine action, without divine interaction within someone, that human witness is ineffective. So uh, the, the witness always, always depends on the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction and a receptive heart among one's hearers. This is, this is the way one writer puts it. He says, um, uh, the interplay between human initiative and divine action or divine quickening identifies our responsibility and reminds us that God is the one who ultimately gives the results. This dual perspective helps us avoid not only being lethargic about witness, but also feeling ourselves under a bondage of having to produce evangelistic results. Our call is to be faithful. Our call is to be faithful in going out and in using the best methods we know, and God will look after the results. This should be an encouragement to us. If God wants someone saved, he might use you. You can perfectly deliver the gospel, and they might not respond. And the great news is, it's not up to you. What is up to you is your faithfulness in the story of God. To be involved in the story of God. That is an amazing encouragement. And I want to read this one more time. Our call is to be faithful using the best methods we know. God will look after the results. God will look after the results. If you are somewhere where someone in ministry uses the results of that ministry to justify whatever happens around it, be very cautious. Because our call is not to the results, it is to faithfulness. If I were to stand here and tell you that all of you, if you believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you will live a happy, healthy life. You will become wealthy. I mean, look at Lydia. She was wealthy. She was able to bless the church uh, later on. Uh, don't you want that? Don't you want security and happiness and wealth? Believe in Jesus and you will have it. If I was to stand up here and say that, all of you could possibly put your faith in Jesus. It's possible. Which would be an amazing result, right? But is anything about what I said true? No. Last week when we were discussing the will of God, Joe taught us that the will of God is that we are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I never told you about the suffering that you might have to do for the sake of Jesus. I presented a false gospel. And praise God when he makes people still respond to false gospel proclamations. But what a warning to people that point to results as the... the the justification for terrible ministry. Horrible things happen 
when bad theology gets involved with people. So be careful when people point to results as the the main focus or the main justification uh, for for their methods in ministry. Okay, I'm going to get off of that soapbox for a second. Um, We see that uh, with all of Lydia's wealth, the city's wealth and everything, uh, later on Paul uh, speaks about this. And do you remember what he says uh, about what happens with the church of Philippi? It's, it's so faithful to the, the mission, to the story of God, that they are actually supporting other churches financially. They support Paul. That's amazing. Now, one, one observation that I want to point out is that uh, God wants to use you and your gifts for his kingdom. He doesn't say here, Lydia, you need to give up your business now. You became a Christian Stop working, stay at home, cook food, and, you know, stop talking. He doesn't say that. Some people in Christianity may want you to believe that that is, uh, that is what all women should do, but Paul doesn't say it. She keeps working, as best we can tell. And God uses that gift to bless other churches. We heard just uh, two to three weeks ago uh, about uh, the, the influence that Timothy's mother and grandmother had over him. See, there are some people that want to point to the, the, the Christian faith as being, uh, uh, you know, patriarchal, chauvinistic, um, just, you know, terrible, you know. Uh, but that, that's, not what, that's not true according to the scriptures. What we see is that the gospel changes hearts. What, what was Paul's profession before he became a, uh, a believer in Jesus Christ? Okay, tent maker. Okay, uh, what was Paul's, uh, what did he do? What was he known as? He was a Pharisee. He was on his way to persecute Christians, right? Pharisees, like, often prayed the prayer, God, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was a common prayer that Pharisees prayed. Do you see a changed heart in Paul now? Does he value women? Absolutely he does. Lydia, quite possibly, is the first believer in all of Europe. And her house would become the foothold of the church of Jesus Christ in that region. It's amazing. I love that. Now, um, we have to think for a second about the impact that this may have in our own lives. Some of you may be called to change your profession. Like Paul's was like a 180. Instead of persecuting Christians, he became one and started telling everyone else they should be Christians, right? Right? Some of you may be called to stay in the profession you're in and allow God to use that to be the light of the world. I can't tell you what that is. I can tell you that for me, what it looked like was um, having a scholarship to go to college uh, as an Air Force uh, officer and almost deciding to just not do that at all and just go into ministry. 
Uh, but through a lot of prayer and counsel, uh, we decided, no, going, you know, going to college, going to the Air Force is the right thing to do. And, and God can send me around all over, and, and I can be used in that way. Um, but I'll also tell you that that call towards ministry, it never went away. It actually just kept getting louder and louder and louder and louder to the point where when we were afforded the opportunity to get out of the Air Force, we did so. That's what it looked like in my life. It's going to look different in everyone's life. Don't try to, uh, when you're considering your own story with the story of God, try to uh, fit 100% in, in, into someone else's narrative. You've got to pray about it. You need to seek godly counsel and figure out what that might look like for you. Now, I need to move pretty quickly because I'm running out of time. So, uh, verse 15, look at what it says. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, uh, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, um, if we are just flying by this real quickly, and we are going to fly by this pretty quickly, but if you're reading this, you could be like, oh, cool, so her whole house got saved because she got saved. It's very easy to make that connection. In fact, some people try to preach it that way. But when we are reading the scriptures, we have to go through this step where we allow scripture to interpret scripture, right? And what do we know about the salvation message? What is required for salvation? Faith, right? We know that. Um, Ephesians 2 tells us that uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith right? Um, what else? Jesus said uh, in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me or, or your, uh, your representative of your household. That's okay too. He didn't say that, right? No one comes to the Father but through me, okay? Um, so it can't mean household salvation because someone over the household believed. Jesus himself in uh, Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36, says this, uh, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, we could spend a lot of time just on that and, like, really what that means. But at a, at a bare minimum for our purpose today, it can't mean that a household gets saved when one person gets saved. It can't mean that. So we have to look at this uh, scripture and consider for a second, what does it mean when it says, and when she uh, and her household had been baptized, she urged us uh, staying? Well, we have to look at the patterns that are set before us in scripture, and we see that Luke uses a common pattern all the way throughout Acts of uh, gospel proclamation, faith response, baptism. Gospel, faith, baptism. Over and over again in the book. In fact, this is the only time in the book of Acts where there is not a clear mention of a household being saved or being baptized, and, and, and it doesn't clearly say that they also heard the message or it says that like they also responded to the message. This is the only time. And we might talk a little bit more about it next week because I am running out of time, 
with the Philippian jailer, but Joe's got a lot on his plate with that message next week. There's so much. So I just want to give you uh, some thoughts on this. If it can't mean that the household can be saved due to one person being saved, how do we understand uh, this, this working here? Um, well, when we look at the pattern and we see that pattern that I laid out, I think it is a full, like, an easy distinction in kind of long-form narrative, long-form explanation of events to shorten the pattern sometimes. What do I mean by that? If I was telling you a story about a missionary journey that I took, and I was like, you know, I, I was here and I preached the gospel, and, and they responded in faith, and, and we baptized them. And then I went over here and I preached the gospel, and they responded in faith, and I baptized them. And, and over here, I, I preached, and, and there was faith and baptism. And then the gospel, faith, baptism, gospel, faith, baptism, gospel, baptism, gospel, baptism. What just happened? Did I, did I say that the last two, that faith wasn't required for those last two scenarios for people to be baptized? Not really. I had already established a pattern of explanation of what happens, right? I think the same thing could be happening here. Where it doesn't explicitly say her household heard the message and, and therefore also received Christ through faith, and then they were baptized. Now, there are some other things going on, too, and I would love to talk to you about them. So if you want to come to our group Tuesday nights, please let me know. Not this week, though. We will not be meeting, but we can talk about it next week. Um, with that, I'd like to kind of close and wrap up with thinking about your story. Your story inside of God's story. What are some of the takeaways that you might have for this? Well, for starters, what do you see Lydia respond with? You see her respond with amazing hospitality, inviting her into her home, inviting uh, them into her home. And then when they come back through, you see that her house is used later in the book of Acts as the meeting place for the, ch for the church in Philippi. And they're welcomed. You see that hospitality used by God to grow the church, to knit together people and create such a, such a culture of hospitality that they are willing to, to support other people that they may not even know just for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their identity in Jesus. That's something that we should consider. If, if you're someone that like does not want people in your house, there may be an opportunity for you to examine your own heart here. But there are other ways to show hospitality that doesn't necessarily involve uh, inviting people into your home. And I would encourage you to think through those ways. Um, my wife and I, when we, when we go to purchase homes, uh, we did this when we were buying up in Dallas. We did it down here too. Uh, one of the things that we consider when we're looking at houses is not just if they would be good for our family, but we, uh, we think, uh, would they be good for ministry? Would they be a good place for God to use? And we pray over that as part of our decision. We pray that God would use our homes in ministry. 
relatively recently, uh, someone in our church was building a house here. And so uh, several of us went to their house and wrote verses on all of like the studs and stuff like that before the walls went up. And we prayed over that house. God wants to use you and your gifts, but he also wants to use what you have. After all, he gave it to you, right? There's this idea that there is a a holistic approach to how we interact with the story of God, how we get involved. Because God saves someone of a diverse background here through gospel proclamation. And God will continue to save people. He wants to use you and your gifts. He wants to use your hospitality if you're someone that's gifted in that way. Regardless of what you've heard before, regardless if you think you're too young or too old or or too rich or not rich enough or uh, too cool for school, I don't know if anybody uses that phrase anymore. I probably just dated myself. But the, the point is, is that we're all supposed to be involved. We are all supposed to be involved. And that's my prayer for us today. Oh, Father, would you help us to be a community of believers that, that, that so sees our story wrapped up in your story, that so sees who we are as identified with your son, Jesus. That you would help us live lives that that reflect you, reflect your glory, that call people to you, that call people who might be burdened to you, that we may call people to the one who truly breaks chains, sets people free, free from themselves, free free from their own sin. Oh God, will you help us to be a people that sees that, that would do that. Help us to be people that are, that build relationships with one another through through hospitality, through through desiring to, to be a part of each other's lives through giving to one another. Oh God, will you do that for us? Help us to be a part of your story. And we know that's only possible because of your son Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And God, if if there's anyone here today that, that hasn't responded to that, I ask you to open their heart just like you did for Lydia. There is nothing more important in this world than responding in faith to you. So God, I just ask that you would would do that for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.